When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's just go to the phones. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? Well, it's just another beautiful morning out there. What can I say? Yes, sir. It sure is. You get anything done yesterday? I got a fair amount done. We were pretty busy over at the nursery. It's kind of one of those days I'm really glad I don't have an office job. I feel sorry for people that can't get out and enjoy the kind of day we had yesterday. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, it is the season to get seed started, and I had a... uh, something that I wanted to tell you guys. Um, when it comes to starting seeds inside, yep. uh, Johnny's has got a, Johnny's seed has got a, a leak-proof uh, shallow tray that uh, we put our uh, plug trays in. Okay. Termination trays in. Uh-huh. And uh, when the, the seedlings need water, instead of taking them outside and getting the sprinklers or the cans out, uh, all you do is just raise that... Uh, plug tray up and just put a quart of water in that uh, that leak-proof tray and you water them from the bottom. Sure. I was wanting to, to tell your your listeners about that. It makes uh, makes life a lot easier when it comes to raising <laughs> seedlings. It's not nearly as messy either. <laughs> you don't have all that perlite and debris just floating out all over the place. And, I, you know, uh, again, I just can't tell you how often we see on all kinds of plants where People don't get it that you've got to water all the way through to the bottom of the pot. That's where most of your roots are going to be when things are growing. And that's one of the great things about, you know, having a basically a water bath you can set it down in is that it's uh, wicking the moisture up from the bottom. So you get a very thorough, very even watering. So that's, you know, that's a great plan. Is it something that uh, you have an individual tray for each one of your I guess you're probably using 72 plug trays or something like that. Well, the, with the 162s for the peppers and okay. then soil blocks for the tomatoes, but um, there are little individual trays that the that the, the the plug tray will go into. Yeah, I didn't know whether you had one and you were just moving the plug trays around, putting it down in that one, or whether you had one of these uh, saturation trays under each one of your plug trays. That's good to know. Yeah, the, they're reasonable in price, and you can um, you can put uh, a leak-proof shallow tray underneath each plug tray, or they've got uh, they've got pro trays for people that want to grow a bigger transplant. Sure, but it's just going down there and and putting a quart of water in each one is a whole lot easier than dragging them outside. And, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and that that uh, that water tray underneath is certainly reusable. You probably get a lot of lot of seasons of. Uh, running those plug trays through them before you have to replace that. Yeah, if you don't get rough and beat up the corners like I do. (laughs) I think you mean get in a hurry is what you mean. Yeah. The the one thing, if you want to try to cheap Charlie that and go with the aluminum um, turkey cooking um, pans, you'll you'll get in a lot of problems there. Oh, Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had one guy that was growing seedlings in... uh, in aluminum uh, turkey pans, and he had the weirdest looking colors on his uh, on his vegetables we'd ever seen. They were uh, just uh, I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. So evidently, the 
aluminum was bleeding out into the the media. Well, that and your fertilizers, uh, you know, they will react. Even your organic fertilizers react with the metals. And I've I'm not fond of growing anything in a metal tray in any way, form, or fashion. I know years ago we did a bunch of plants for a restaurant up in Dallas, and they wanted to plant, they had a bunch of old musical instruments hanging around as a theme, and they wanted to plant into those, and uh, I said, no, we're not going to plant directly in them. We would smear that metal with a little Vaseline, put a little cleaner's bag down in there and trim the top, and then plant into it, because I'm, I'm like you, where you've got those roots touching metal, whether it's galvanized, whether it's copper, whether it's brass, or whether it's aluminum, the plants just don't seem to do as well. Well, I'm voting for the bottom water and those seedlings. It keeps it keeps the seedlings a lot drier, and they they do a, I think they do a lot better with the with the bottom water. So that's what I'm voting for this morning. Well, that's a very good plan. Let me ask you one more thing: Do you warm your water, or are, is your water that's coming out of the tap is it uh, already a reasonable temperature? Or do you think it's important? I know some people use a foliar spray of cold water actually as a growth retardant, since uh, on vegetables uh, we wouldn't do it anyway. But you can't legally use growth retardants on vegetable plants and they actually use a cold water drench to uh you know to make a little more compact plant but when you're watering do you worry about the water temperature uh you know even your big boys up at hydro gardens if you get a, a brochure from them on starting tomatoes recommend a warm or a room temperature water yeah yeah so yeah that's that's important uh especially when you got them on the heat mat it takes all the uh takes all the heat off of them and takes them a while to build back up again. oh sure yeah well that's that's what i do because i don't have nearly as big an operation as you do but i've got a couple of uh two and a half gallon watering cans in the greenhouse and i'll just fill them up and set them up on the benches and they're going to be 70 to 75 degrees whatever the temperature in the greenhouse is and uh that's a whole lot better than that well water coming straight out of the ground. Of course, well water is better than water. It's been sitting up in the tank on these 30-degree mornings, but uh, I think that's that's one thing that a lot of people overlook that are trying to get their seedlings started, and they do a lot better if they if they do water them in with warm water as opposed to uh, that chilly stuff that we tend to get in January. Yeah, for the new seed starters, I think if you'll uh, if you'll try out the, the bottom watering and the, the little... Uh, uh, little trays that are built for it, you'll you'll be a lot more successful, is is my opinion, because that's that's the only way I do it anymore. Is. And you're still real high on those plugs that are made out of core and worms castings and mycorrhizae. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, some of your super hot chilies don't really like to germinate in peat, and nobody knows why. It's just that's just the way it is. And if you go with the the core, you'll get a lot better germination. Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that peat is very definitely antimicrobial. That's why peat can be used as a preservative, and why you know you that's why they're pulling out virtually you know totally undeteriorated uh, hundred to a thousand year old carcasses out of the peat bogs. When I was in Ireland a few years ago, saw the head of a red stag deer that had been extinct for like 5,000 years, and yet this one was an almost perfect condition that had been pulled out of a peat, peat bog. And uh, that's the reason I don't like peat really much of anything is that it is so antimicrobial. And I think that probably has something to do with why some of the seeds don't germinate as well in it. Well, if, you're, if your new seed starters will load their uh, trays and then press Press that little uh, 
plug of soil down real good and bottom water them and get them wet before they they put the seeds in they'll they'll be starting on uh, on a good way to go uh, if you want to pick up those small tomato seeds you just wet the end of a toothpick and right it, it's almost like glue so yeah, that'll work real good we always enjoy learning from a pro james always good to hear from you it's a lot of fun man <laughs> you just get out and keep up the good work and we'll look forward to our next visit Thanks, Bob. You're sure welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. All right. John's up next. Good morning, John. Morning, Bob. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. about yourself? Just uh, doing absolutely outstanding. Fantastic. Uh, I've got 11 acres here in Dehanus, just the other side of uh, Pondo, uh-huh. and I've got a small apiary operation, and I'm looking to thinking about trying to plant some goldenrod so i've got something during the fall time that's blooming to kind of give my bees a, a pollen boost going into the winter sure just don't tell your neighbors that have allergy problems <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it'll certainly grow well and it's certainly the bees sure do like it and it's not uh you know it's it's a roadside weed uh in a lot of parts exactly. of the country so you should you should do just fine with it and in fact there are people that grow it and sell it as a cut flower Oh, that's good. Yeah, I was kind of curious if it would grow here. I knew the, the temperature wouldn't affect it, uh, and I've got real heavy clay soil. I, that shouldn't be a problem for it. I don't think I it'll think be. I don't think it'll be a problem at all. I think you'll have to, you know, improve the fertility. I think you'll be, you know, putting a, a good organic fertilizer down before you plant, and then following it up either with liquid molasses or liquid fertilizer at some point to get the absolute best growth out of it. Are you going to be able to irrigate? No, no, I have no water whatsoever okay. here. Well, it's again, I've seen it growing in the high desert of Wyoming where it doesn't have a lot of water. So you're just going to have to pray for some good soil moisture to get it started. But after that, it, it ought to do just fine for you. What would be a good time to plant that? Is now probably a good time for I think it, you're or? a little early for it. I'd be planting it um, south of San Antonio. I'd be planting it uh, into February, early March. Okay, that would give me time to get it germinated. Uh, would I be better going with the uh, seed directly sown or should i go ahead and get them started and uh plant them oh if you've got that many acres you're going to do i direct so uh if you can drill them you know lightly uh i think it'll germinate better if you've got uh half an inch of soil over the seed than if you have it sitting on the surface but i have to say i've not grown it so i'd I'd sure check that fact i don't think the seeds need light to germinate so but i sure wouldn't plant them deeply i'd plant them about like you do say rye or something like that okay that sounds like a winner i think that's what i needed to know then i sure appreciate your time well it's always a pleasure and uh let me know how your crop comes out i'll look forward to hearing from you I sure will. I'll get you some honey this summer, this spring, if I get a good harvest. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. I love nothing better than good fresh honey, and uh, blessed to have a few, a uh, couple of customers that always bring us a few, a few bottles every year, and that's my that's my sweetener of choice. So I uh, hope it works well for you. You call anytime I can help. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank Bye. you, sir. Bye. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great, sir. How about yourself? Well, I'm fine. I'll be better if a little sun would come out today. <laughs> I think it'll probably happen. You usually does. Uh, there are a few clouds floating around, but uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna have another pretty day, and it's supposed to get up near seventy again. So um, it should be pretty darn good for a January day. Yes, sir. I, as long as it gets a little warm, that's what I like. You and me both. Uh, question I got for you, Bob, is I got I, I got some uh, acorns from from old trees that I want to plant. And I forgot whether you 
they're good if they float or don't float. They're good if they sink. They are probably not good if they float. I got some from last year. You think they'd be any good? Yes, sir. I think that uh, a pretty high percentage of them would be. And with a year-old acorn, I'm not sure that the float test will be 100% accurate. I would uh, I go ahead and throw them in water, and you know the ones that sink are going to be good. The ones that don't, look over that acorn real carefully. If you see what looks like a little pinhole in it, uh, those are the ones that are going to be bad. They've had a little worm uh, get in and sort of eat the heart out of the meat of the nut. But uh, the year-old ones, you may have to go more on a physical exam of the nut than just uh, throwing it in the water to see what sinks. But I'm going to tell you probably 85% of the year-old ones are still going to be good. Okay, sir. Uh, talking about worms, you know, a few months ago, about three months ago, they, these little black worms, they were going across the road. Oh, yeah. I live, yeah. I live, what were those worms? Uh, people call them sod webworms or army worms. Uh, they are just devastating to grass as far as eating the foliage off of it. I mean, the, the grass will come back, but ranchers and people running cattle and goats, things like that, uh, they can just ruin a pasture. It just all had to do with the weather. We get a big hatch of these things about once every 10 years or so. And um, you can control them if you anticipate them and put out the little trichogramma wasps. But most people don't go to that much trouble because they're not a problem every year. But, uh, yeah, people call them either army worms or sod wet worms are the two most common names of them. Well, I knew we had them this year, but I didn't know they got that big like that. Yeah. Well, they're... You know, there's many different kinds of caterpillars as there are moths and butterflies, and there are a lot of those. So uh, um, they're, they're <laughs> all kinds, all colors, all sizes of them. Okay, one other question. I got a couple of peach trees that back in the when it, when it was a drought and we had, they lost all their leaves, and then they come back. But you think they'll have any peaches this year? Um. You know, that'll all depend on how well they bloom. Yes, sir, I think you'll have peaches. I would certainly, uh, uh, if you haven't fertilized them over the winter months, I definitely would do so. I would certainly do your thinning on them, as we always do in uh, January or early February. But uh, um, the, the peaches crop probably will not as be as big, will not be quite the same high quality, but you're going to get peaches, uh, assuming that, you know, we get the appropriate amount of chill. We haven't had very much freezing weather this year, but we've had a lot of a lot of weather down there in the chilling range. In fact, I've seen some low-chill peaches actually already in bloom in San Antonio. So I don't see any reason. If you've got have peaches in the past, I think you'll have peaches again this year. All right, so one other and I'm through. I've got one acorn i mean um uh, uh, oak tree in a pot it's been in there about 10 years and then last year the biggest one it's about 10 foot tall the, the top part of it is dead do you think it's any good anymore oh sure yeah it uh uh, oak trees are hard to maintain in pots unless you've got it in a you know 200 gallon tub or something like that but it just uh -huh. got too dry at some point and uh you know, it, it will come back. That top will fill in. It's not a necessarily a tree that makes a single trunk or a single leader. Um, I'm going to tell you that uh, it will be a lot easier to maintain either in a giant pot or in the ground. And when you've had one that has been in a pot that long, the potential for circling and girdling roots is very great. So if you do replant it, be sure and take your shears 
and go all the way down one side of the root ball and cut every root. Otherwise, those roots are going to continue to get bigger. The trunk is going to continue to get bigger, and that root is going to be like a noose around the trunk and can ultimately you know, kill the tree. So whenever you take a plant that has been in a pot, a woody plant that's been in a pot for a long time, and go to plant it out, it's very, very important that you uh, cut the roots down one side of the root ball so you don't end up with those little nooses of roots going around your trunk. Okay, Bob, you've answered all my questions as usual, so I appreciate it, and you have a good day. You have a good day and a good year, Eddie. We'll talk again, and I'll move on to Paul. Good morning, Paul. Morning. Morning, sir. I got, Yeah, I've got some uh, questions that are maybe more pertaining to uh, down the road in a few months, but uh, I have uh, quite a few oak trees on my land that are maybe 15 to 20 feet tall at the highest, and yes, sir. six inches in diameter. I've noticed uh, in the last couple of years during the growing season, I see basically no new growth on some of these trees. And I'm mm-hmm. just wondering, is it just purely a, a factor of maybe poor conditions around the tree itself? You're up is in the hill country, I presume? Yeah, I'm up in uh, central Blanco County. Okay. I'm just curious if there's you know something I can do to help these things out and uh that was my first question well here's here's the situation you know i'll talk to people and they'll say you know i just don't know how much topsoil i have and i'll tell them well do you have some really big trees or or are all of your trees you know stopping when they get to be four to six inches in diameter and when the answer is they're not very many great big trees but lots of little trees that tells me you're sitting on a very shallow layer of soil And that means two things. That means your trees are going to suffer more when we have a prolonged drought. And it also means they're going to be a little short on nutrients. And we've had two droughty years. Now, the drought broke in a big way back in early September this year. But uh, um, it's not at all unusual to see what you're looking at. And there's some places I've actually seen trees die uh, as from those that situation. And it's very interesting in that the people who – you know, study tree rings. When you cut a tree and, you know, look at the annual growth rings and try to determine how old the tree is, they um, found out a few years back that they had to totally redo a lot of their thinking on how old some of the big trees were because there would be times of drought when the trees made only a single growth ring over a period of about five years or so. So uh, you're probably looking at a, you know, at a situation where the trees could use more water, could use more nutrition. If you provide the nutrition, be absolutely certain that it's only organic fertilizer because when you use the synthetic chemical fertilizers like most people put on their pastures, uh, those use those make the plants use a lot of water. And if you were to put out that kind of fertilizer and we didn't get rain, you'd probably end up doing, you'd be a lot worse for your trees and having done nothing at all. Um, if you use the organics, it doesn't create that water rush, that dependency on water. So that would very definitely help them. But what you need is really just a few more rainy years and uh, fewer of these years with prolonged drought. And your trees will grow. But uh, what you're looking at is just a totally natural phenomenon when you have shallow soils and uh, very little moisture. Okay. Um, well, I was thinking of just spreading some uh, growing green or maybe some oh, compost yeah. around a few. Uh, both of those things would be fine. You know, to see what would happen. 
Okay. Both with the beaver. And if you've got a bunch of trees, if you're ever going to use a whole bunch of the growing green, uh, call Stuart over at uh, Medina in Hondo. If you have a trailer to go pick it up, he actually puts up the fertilizer and uh, 1,000 and 2,000 pound. They're called totes. They're a big bag and is a heck of a lot cheaper than buying it in 40 pound bags for the commercial guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, another question about fertilizing grass. You know, I've got some extra grown green laying around. I was thinking of using it up, uh, but I, I assumed I was better off waiting until maybe March to put it down. Absolutely there... not. Put it down today. Okay, that's yeah. You know, I would rather just get it out of my garage. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing: <laughs> when when you're using a a chemical fertilizer, you know, Scotts or whosoever, um, it is the the nutrients especially the nitrogen are in a highly water soluble form that does not bind to the soil in any way and when you put that kind of fertilizer out in the winter months 99 percent of it just leaches away just totally goes away and it is a waste of time it's one of the beauties of organic fertilizers and it all has to do with uh, the charge on the uh, fertilizer molecule. On, in the case of a uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, it has a, uh, uh, a charge that actually repels the charge that's in the soil. It has a negative charge in our soils, especially with clays in them, uh, have a negative charge. And so nothing binds the fertilizer to the soil. It just washes away. When you go with a fertilizer like you're growing green, uh, rather than it, it has uh, a positive charge. It's what we call a cation as opposed to an anion. And it actually binds to the soil. And your plants will go ahead and make some use of the fertilizer. Those root systems stay active all winter long. The fertilizer is process as it were by microbes in the soil and so it the plants are much more ready to put on a burst of growth in the spring when you feed in the middle of the winter with an organic fertilizer and because of the way it binds to the soil virtually none of it washes away if you put down your growing green now um other than what is used by the plants, 99% of it would still be there by the 1st of March. If you put down a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer now, the plants would use virtually none of it, and about 95% of it would be gone when March 1st came around. And that's why your ag guys, that's why your uh, extension agents and all make it such a big deal of not, uh, not fertilizing until March, but they simply don't know as much about the organics. The organics are useful 365 days a year. I personally think late fall or winter is one of the most important times you fertilize because it allows the plant to store the nutrients and get ready for that big burst of growth in the spring. Makes sense? Yeah, that's perfect. I'm good. glad to hear that. Well, that's, that's all I had. Well, then you get out and have a good day, and uh, we'll talk again. Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Paul. Certainly. Goodbye. Well, I say good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I uh, hope you're having a great morning. I'm out here already working in the yard before sunup. Oh, well, you're having a, an even better morning. I love being here, but uh, days this pretty, you know, it's just uh, I don't spend a lot of time inside my house when the weather's nice. It's a, it's a place I, I go to you. sleep and eat, and most of the rest of the time I'm outside. I hear you. Um got a couple questions. One of them's related to uh, my uh, Washingtonian palm tree. Okay. And the other one uh, is related to these, um, I forget what they're called, uh, those creepy crawly vines over on the East Coast uh, that came from Japan. Kudzu. Yes. Um, on my Washingtonian, it's about six feet high where the uh, palms are coming out, the new ones, you know. Okay. I got a, it's got a 30-inch circumference in the middle. 
Uh-huh. Uh, and I was uh, trimming, you know, the the old ones off down to the as close to the trunk as possible. And uh, one of the first things I'm wondering is, you know, should we actually be doing that or just let nature, you know, have them fall off with the wind? It's, it's just like getting a haircut, Mike. The tree doesn't know you've done it. The, what you're cutting there is basically dead tissue. It certainly cleans it up and makes it look a lot nicer. And uh, you have to be very careful doing it in the summer months because, man, the paper wasp, that is where they love to build those nests. And uh, so if you're going to do any trimming, do it now, and you'll have a whole less lot less likely chance of uh, wasp stings. But uh, you're just doing it uh, for appearance's sake. It doesn't make any difference to the tree one way or the other. And... So I have, and I was wondering, because I saw some photos, you know, on, on the Internet and stuff of different ones, and, and some of them get, like, real close up to the trunk um, mm-hmm. where it has kind of like a wrinkly skin, right? Right. And um, others, you know, they just cut that uh, maybe within an inch or two uh, without going down that far. Well, so here's how much should we take it? See, I like to cut them back to maybe an inch or two, and then over time, over two or three years' time, that little part that was left where it was adhered to the trunk will fall away on its own. That slick okay. is that slickness is what it will ultimately get to. But I think you're you run the danger of damaging the trunk if you try to strip that off too soon. So I'd tell you just take off whatever foliage is ugly. Leave it alone, and those things will naturally drop away, given a little bit of time. Now, the trunk of a Washingtonia, and there are a couple of different species of Washingtonia, but the trunk of any palm tree is a totally different structure internally. If you slice through the trunk and uh, even went down to a microscopic level, it is totally different than the trunk on an elm tree or an oak tree or pecan or something like that. So lots of different rules apply you know, to palms when it comes to trimming, and you certainly don't ever paint wounds or anything like that. And girdling up a, a palm, being buried too deeply, that's not nearly as much of an issue with a palm as it is with a uh, with a woodier tree. So uh, there are definitely some different things about the palms. But as far as trimming them up, no, I would just cut them back to where that uh, that that frond or the petiole on the frond is just an inch or two long. It will drop away on its own when the tree's ready to drop it. Okay, great. Good thing I did call you because I think I might have been going down a little too close. Uh, well, I like I say, you, you probably really wouldn't hurt anything, but you're certainly not doing the tree any good. Where, I'm, where I've exposed it, where I think I might have overexposed it, uh, uh-huh. you know, you could see the uh, the where the frond is actually, you know, almost uh, right up to the trunk. Uh, so you could see that it's still white. Sure. Well, again, you could get a little sunburn. You could get a little, actually rough it up a little bit. But the tree's just going to callous that over, and it's not going to be a problem with the tree. Okay, great. And uh, the other thing, as I was trimming these off, uh, I found a a caterpillar in between there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't know caterpillars got into these things, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the caterpillars will get in there. There are not as many different caterpillars that eat because palms have a much tougher, much more fibrous foliage. Uh, yeah. But, no, there, there's a caterpillar going to live on just about every plant in the whole world. Okay. Uh, and then, last but not least, that uh, Japanese uh, crawly vine. Yeah. I just came back from Georgia where my son lives, and I noticed, uh, you know, like it's from when I was there maybe 20 years ago, I was just starting to uh, take in, in uh, right up on the east coast that yeah. runs with oh, Georgia. Yeah. 
Yeah. And this was around Atlanta, so it's already made its way to Atlanta. Oh, it's all Haven't over they come the up south. With something to destroy that stupid stuff? Uh, they haven't yet. They haven't yet. I I spent my high school years in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and uh-huh. um, you know, and of course it was a big issue. And uh, we, I was part of an explorer scout group that worked with some of the uh, scientists out of the Oak Ridge National Laboratories, and we went and studied an area called Copper Basin, Tennessee, where the sulfur dioxide fumes from a copper smelter had literally just killed every blade of foliage for a, an area several miles around. They were experimenting, thinking this is probably what a nuclear blast site would look like, and they were experimenting with seeing what they could plant that would grow when nothing else would. Kudzu was uh-huh. the champion. Nothing grew like kudzu oh, in that totally devastated area. So, yeah, it's an invasive weed, and other than physical control, uh, I guess you could use some of the brush killers and things, but you wind up killing your trees and your beneficial sure. things. So sure, just sure. Uh, uh, it just takes a little, a little more maintenance, and uh, thank God it doesn't like our drought here in Texas. That's why you have so much more of it in the uh, middle and deep south than you do in Texas. We're just too dry uh-huh. for it to really thrive. Okay, and just curious, uh, since this thing is so resistant and so good at growing and stuff, uh, why haven't they used it on all those dang hills over there in California that are always, you know, washing away with the rain? I think it has, uh, you know, a lot to do with the drought there because California is basically a dry, dry climate. They get uh, they get less rain probably than Laredo does. It just always huh. seems to come at an inopportune time. But, uh, yeah, if you're in California in the wet season, I mean, it's green and luxuriant. But eight or nine months out of the year, it's just a dry, fire-prone uh, coastal area, and it's just too dry for kudzu to do well. Only thing you'll really see, you'll see vines on the cliffs, especially in Northern California, but they're mainly some of the passion vines, especially the red passion vine, and things that can grow with a lot less moisture than kudzu takes. Interesting, interesting. All yeah. right, thank you, Bob. Uh, you know, lots of information this morning. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Mike. Get out and have a great right. uh, weekend. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. All right, uh, David's up next. Good morning, David. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Uh, two things. I'm going to plant some sod a month or so, I hope, and it's going to go over an area that's got the broad, leafy winter weeds and some grassy stuff. Is there sure. a way to eliminate that, or should I just put the sod on top of it and not worry about it? Well, with your sod, it needs to make good contact with the soil underneath. That's why we roll it. We're not trying to make it level. We're trying to press out the air pockets between the sod and the soil. So I would either mow it down very low. I would rake it real hard if you have a lot of debris there. But as long as that, as long as you can press your new grass down against dirt underneath there, it's going to root and grow and choke out any problem that's there. So your only mandate is just getting rid of the stuff to the point that uh, that your new sod can be directly in contact with soil underneath. Now, you could go through there with green winter weeds. You could go through and spray with your vinegar orange oil mix right now, and you'd kill out basically 100% of it, and that would give it a little time to rot away, which in many cases would be a good idea. But if it's just kind of sparse, mostly bare soil, you don't need to do a thing except put your sod down and then roll it good with that water fillable roller to press out those air pockets and your new grass will take off like like magic 
Okay, I thought about the vinegar and orange oil. I didn't know if that would be as effective this time of the year. And on anything green, it is very effective. And as a matter of fact, people that have yards that have browned out, have Bermuda or Zoysia, or in some cases, St. Augustine, uh, winter weed control is so easy because you can go over your yard and spray with the vinegar and orange oil. It will kill the dandelions. It will kill the henbit. It will kill the winter weeds that are coming up but will be totally harmless to your permanent grasses turn brown with the frost. And so, okay. yes, it is very effective. Now, it's not going to do a thing against uh, Johnson grass or Bermuda or anything that has an underground runner, but anything that's green, it will knock it back, if not kill it completely. Okay. Second thing, I have an oak tree. It's got a branch probably 8, 10 inches in diameter, about 5 feet off the ground. And, um, like, on the side of the branch, it's got a large hole in it that gathers water Mm -hmm. um is that a problem should i drill a hole and let it drain or does the tree use that or am i rotting out the branch you're you're not hurting the branch at all and you do more harm than good drilling a hole in there i used to think that it was good to drill a hole and and drain the water out my arborist friend david vaughn explained to me that trees are very good about compartmentalizing damage i mean it Underneath where that hole is, where it's holding water, the tree has built a barrier so that any rot or anything else cannot spread any further. If you go and drill a hole through that barrier, you're exposing a lot more of the limb to rot. So I, if you wanted to, you know, if you just wanted to do something, you could fill it. You could fill it with spray foam insulation or something like that. But uh, absolutely no drilling, no physical removal there. Okay. Well, David, David's been to my house. He's also been to the property with that oak tree on it all i could get him to talk about was some fishing hole in bernie so I don't... <laughs> yeah i've got a pretty I, good one was, of those it was hard for me to keep his attention well it's anyway. uh, it when is and and he's retired by the way first of the year he retired from uh Edder tree care but he's still going to do consulting which i'm uh, he just he's probably the smartest arborist I know. He's the guy that teaches the classes that other arborists take to get certified. So uh, we both have a lot of respect for him, and that's what I learned from him is no drilling to uh, drain the holes. It doesn't do any good at all to fill fill them in, but if you want to do that, if you think it makes it look better, you can do that. But, but, but leaving, it, leaving it alone is fine. Uh, that's what Mother Nature's been doing for centuries, and it's working yeah. out pretty well. All right. Thank you. You're sure welcome. Good to talk to you, David. Let me, oops, uh, this is about need to hit right here. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Bob. Morning. I have a coastal field, and I was curious over the summertime, I had termites, of course, coming in. Right. And then when the rains came, they cleared out. But I was just curious, I had heard once before that there was such a thing as an agriculture termite that was different from a house, I guess, termite that, that gets into your wood. And you're exactly right about that. Your agricultural termites are the same in that they only eat dead tissue. They're not going to eat up your live green coastal. Uh, with the exception, there's a third kind of termite that they call a Formosan termite. And those things are a menace because they will eat green wood and they don't live in the ground. Our, our wood-eating termites are subterranean termites that have a big colony underground. Your agricultural termites tend to build tunnels on the surface of the soil. Uh, they dehydrate. They can't stand, you know, hot temperatures and low humidities. So if you go out and look, you'll have what looks like a road map of little tunnels. But once again, they're not doing 
causing permanent damage to your coastal. They're still eating off the uh, just eating off the dead tissues and things like that. Okay. Uh, on a second note, that was just a question that I had that I've been sure. curious about. Uh, on that same coastal field, it's got some regrowth, some mesquite regrowth on part of it, probably 10 acres out of about 40 acres. Uh-huh. And I know you've always said if there's big mesquites, to leave the big mesquites and take out the, the sh- shorter running mesquite. Right. Uh, if there's no big mesquites, would you call out one or uh, everything except for some of the better trees i you know i would call out i would call out everything i mean that second growth mesquite is just a thorny nuisance uh in most of my pastures and things and i have it sort of as a legacy of an elderly uncle that i on the good side i inherited property from him on the bad side he thought it was fun to pick up the mesquite beans out of his yard in san antonio and feed the cows and consequently they planted it everywhere across my ranch i control most of it just through uh you know shredding it off uh, repeatedly where it's places that's hard to do that's where i'll use that uh that diesel and molasses mix to actually kill it out but uh no i you know i i leave the few big old mesquites that i've got but that brushy scrubby mesquite um it's it's the bane of my existence i'm going to kill it everywhere i can some of this brushy mesquite i say brushy but it's some of it's 10 12 feet tall yeah oh yeah but Uh, it's multi-trunked it's not making one single big trunk and uh you know the old days when people worked uh cattle on horseback and things like that that stuff was a uh was just a menace to human health and uh i still don't have any use for it It's, it's totally up to you but uh if you're gonna control it try to control it before it gets that big because when it's small you can go over it with a shredder and chop it off when it gets to that size you're gonna cut it off at ground level with a chainsaw and uh try to get it so far down you don't ever hit that stump with the blade on any kind of any kind of shredder right right now this stuff well, we just bought this place six months ago and you can see from from aerial pictures from the from the past you know five or six years where yep. it's really taken over well i'd so. i'd try to reverse that trend if it were mine yes sir yes sir thank you very much always a pleasure thank you for the call yes, this morning <laughs> goodbye mm-hmm. all right jt's up next hey good morning bob happy new year and to you as well just wanted to follow up on a conversation i heard you and bob i mean you and uh, the dirt doctor have Okay. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, and uh, he was talking about. And I'm not much interested in exercise programs. I get all I need working outside <laughs> on the ranches. And stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know he the was, feeling. He was talking about uh, some 40 second exercise by Dr. Zach Bush. Right. It's more like so, four to four to six minutes, and yeah. um, it's um, I, and I'm like you. I don't usually take time to stop to do that, but uh, it's a great exercise program from what I hear. And, excuse me, got a little something in my throat. One of the specific things that it does is it stimulates stimulates the production of nitric oxide in your body, which is one of the best things in the world for your cardiovascular system. So I don't, I'm not going to tell you really need it if you get as much just daily exercise as I do. But for the more sedentary person whose lifestyle dictates that, it's a very effective exercise program that doesn't take a whole lot of time and something you're not likely to hurt yourself doing uh, like you can with weight machines and things like that. No, I agree with you. In fact, I've tried that and liked it you know, just because it does help with range of motion, that kind of stuff. But the main thing I got out of that, I wondered if you had followed any of that little rabbit trail that Dr. Zach Bush 
Uh, I usually don't do that. No medical stuff. My BS alerts always turned up pretty high on it. Right. But he had. He actually has some test data showing a product that helps uh, offset the effects of glyphosate uh-huh. um, grain, grains and breads, and how it actually helps the, the biome and the intestinal walls. It's pretty interesting. If you get a chance to go through that, that, uh, that Google machine just talks about Zach Bush. And got well, I will certainly do that, and I yeah, I appreciate the hit. A new glyphosate's a big deal in your uh, in your thinking, and it's the first thing I'd seen where there was specific information on how it can help the aligning of the, the gut. You know, I've I've seen some of that from uh, Doctor O'Hara, but I will very definitely go back and look at. Uh, um, Zach Bush's stuff too, because that of course is of great interest to me. And, uh, I really appreciate the heads up. There's so much out there to read and study if you have time. And I'm just always trying to sort, you know, sort through the BS and finding the, the good stuff. So I really appreciate that. And I will check it out. Well, that was one good thing that really got me out of the Dr. I always listen to you guys talk. I enjoy it very much. The contrast of your humility with his, just to say, healthy degree of, uh, Self-confidence is just too funny. <laughs> he, he, he usually concurs with what you have to say, and then we get reminded how smart a guy he is. Well, Howard's – Howard, and, and he's a he's a very giving person. We obviously uh, – he makes a lot of his living in the media business one way or another. I make my living in the nursery business and, uh, and just yeah. do some of these other things for fun, although I'm happy to say I do get – paid a little something for uh doing this but uh we just you know um he lives in dallas i live in the in the hill country and i wouldn't trade for anything in the world on that but he has a lot of experience um the fun thing that he has is with his show where he's syndicated into several hundred markets is he has such a wide range of contacts and friends that uh he can you know lean on them and uh he spends more interview time, whereas I enjoy talking to you guys. But uh, it's just two different styles, and uh, I think both of us have uh, something to bring to the table. And uh, our our visits on Saturday are totally unstructured. We both come in without uh, thinking, well, maybe we ought to talk about this. But uh, none of this is planned out, and spontaneity is a great deal of fun in radio. It is. We always enjoy it and appreciate all you.